just want to invite you, if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. That's where we're going to be continuing our study, copy the book of Acts. Again, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. We'll have the words on the screen, but if you have a hard copy, great. If you want to follow along in a hard copy but don't have one, there are some on the seats in front of you, so feel free to grab one of those. We're just marching through the New Testament book of Acts, little by little. Uh, hey, there was a recent uh, New York Film Academy article that explored the influx of superhero blockbuster movies that have proliferated in the last decade or so. You know what I'm talking about, people. We got the Avengers, the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Black Panther, Spider-Man, you could go on and on. And this uh, article wanted to understand what it was that made these movies so popular recently. Because they've been a big deal, right? Some of you love them. They're good movies. They're fun. Uh, So what is it about them that draws us to them? And the article said, hey, maybe there's some reasons like the special effects and technology is so great nowadays that movies are just pretty amazing, the things that they can do and show you. And so maybe that's why they're so popular nowadays. But the article got to a deeper reason that they suggested as the major reason people gravitate towards superhero movies. And they said it actually mirrors the same reason that these stories were so popular in the first place. Back when comic books were booming in popularity in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And then they looked at how, hey, they actually stayed really popular during World War II and into the Cold War in the 60s during very tumultuous times in history. And what they thought and what they found was that people wanted to escape their challenging lives through movies and stories. And the beautiful thing about superheroes is they pretty much always win, right? They pretty much always have a good ending where the good guy beats the bad guy. Despite the difficulties and the threats and the challenges, they overcome the enemy and are victorious And so the article points out that as people, as human beings, we want to feel powerful, strong, and able. We want to win. And so when we watch these movies or read these comics, we often will identify with the hero, right? We put ourselves kind of in their place. We want to be the Batman or the Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or Iron Man or Captain America or you name it. Or if we don't want to be them, we at least want to have them on our side. Or we want to be on their side because we're drawn to power, stability, strength, victory. The question for us, though, strength, of course, is where do we look to find that power and strength and victory that we long for? Because in the real world, there will be plenty of people or groups or philosophies who will make promises Hey, follow me, live this way, believe these things, be a part of this group, and you'll be okay, and you'll be on the winning team. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, stick with us, embrace this. But not every message or promise that you hear is true, right? There are actually a lot of promises that are made or people that make them that are what we would call a counterfeit, something pretending to be real, pretending to be true, pretending to have the strength or deliverance that you need, and yet they actually can't deliver. 
We're going to see this contrast and this confrontation in the text this morning. It's really going to get at the heart of this reality. You see it in Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 9, but backing up just a little bit to understand where we've been, uh, we see earlier in chapter 8 in verse 4 that believers in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus, because of a great persecution that arose, were scattered throughout the ancient world. They flee the capital city, and initially it might look like the Sanhedrin or the bad guys, the persecutors, you could say, are winning. Maybe the Sanhedrin is even back in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating. They're feeling pretty good about how they've squashed the rebellion. They're all gone. Those Christians, they had to leave town. We put out that fire. And yet we see that they didn't actually put out the fire. They just caused the fire to grow even greater and blaze beyond their city walls. And so these followers of Jesus, fearing for their lives, they leave Jerusalem and go to other parts of the ancient world. And the text tells us that as they go, these Christians, these everyday Christians, these unnamed Christians, preach the word wherever they go. They see this as a great opportunity for mission, sharing the gospel like a farmer scatters seed in the field. The text then is going to go from the general, hey, they're going throughout the region, to zooming in specifically with Philip and his ministry in Samaria. Look at verse 5. It says very simply, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. He's telling people about Jesus. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, how there's this powerful ministry happening. People are being healed. People are being saved. They're responding to Jesus. And it said there's great joy in the city. I believe it was verse 8 that tells us that. Philip, you recall, uh, was one of the seven servants chosen in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 6. Along with Stephen and five others, they were the ones responsible for distributing resources to the widows who were in need. And Philip is going to be so good at sharing the gospel that he'll be later named Philip the Evangelist. Right? An evangelist simply means one who proclaims the good news. So apparently Philip was pretty good at it. And there are pretty good results here as he goes to Samaria. We see people are responding in faith. Now, geographically, we see a little bit of the route that he would have taken from Jerusalem up to Samaria. Samaria is in the mountainous region there between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And the Samaritans were surrounded by the Jews. Uh, They were very close to one another. And yet Jews and Samaritans, as you may know, did not get along very well. Anytime Samaritans come up in the New Testament, there's some kind of conflict or social tension. It's a bit of a long history lesson as to why, but I'll give you just a few highlights and cliff notes. So zoom back to about 1000 BC. We have King David, you know, David and Goliath, David, David and Bathsheba, David. So David's on the throne, but his son Solomon would take to the throne. And Solomon was the last king who would rule over all 12 tribes of Israel. When he died, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and he was such a terrible leader that 10 of the 12 tribes uh, broke off and said, we no longer want to be in relationship with those other two. And so they took to the north. There was a northern kingdom And then there was the southern kingdom. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see uh, the different kings that come to power in the different kingdoms. And the Samaritans have their roots in the northern kingdom. 
And in the northern kingdom, things uh, did not go well, spiritually speaking. I mean, Judah in the south had their problems as well, but especially in the north, there was bad king after bad king after bad king. And so up there, they, they set up alternate worship sites. They're saying, we don't want to go down to Jerusalem to worship. We're going to worship up here. And suddenly, they're, they're marrying people from the surrounding nations who are worshiping false gods. And so they start worshiping false gods as well. They're worshiping idols. Uh, it's just a, a mess. They, they embrace some of the Old Testament scriptures. The Samaritans would look to uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as scripture, but then they would reject the Psalms and the prophets and so on. In the southern kingdom, again, they had their problems as well, uh, but the north uh, really went south, you could say. Now, the southern uh, kingdom was in exile in Babylon, and around the 500s, they returned to Israel and to the capital city to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You can read about it in the book of Ezra. But as they return, again, the Jews of the southern kingdom, they come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans in the north say, hey guys, uh, can we help out? And the Jews in the south exclude them. They say, Samaritans, we don't want your help. No, go away. Uh, you're not like us anymore because you've married uh, other nations, and so you're not pure and true Jews any longer, and you're worshiping false gods, and so we don't want you here. And so the Samaritans responded, fine, we don't really want to worship with you guys. Anyway, you have Jerusalem and the temple. We don't care. We have Mount Gerizim. That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and that's going to be our holy site, and so we're going to worship God there. Fine, fine. And it... Stayed that way for 500 years, worshiping in different places, uh, looking at each other with animosity. It's strong, the tension. And yet, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus starts to change things with how the Jews are to interact with the Samaritans. We see Jesus go to Samaria. We see Jesus meet with a Samaritan woman, if you remember the story in John chapter 4. And so Philip follows in the Lord Jesus' footsteps. And he now is Messiah to Samaria. And he's going to preach the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. The long-awaited king of the, of the universe has arrived. And not only did he come, but he died. And then he rose again and he conquered sin and death. And now his kingdom is inaugurated and he invites all who believe to find faith or to find life in him and in him alone. So a lot of background there. But it's important to understand where we are. All of this has been review so far, okay? We said we're starting at 9 going forward today, but we haven't even got to verse 9 yet. So now we're going to jump into verse 9. Look at what it says. It says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. And he boasted that he was someone great. Now, this is in the NIV. We preach from the NIV here. I like the NIV. But I like how the ESV translates this particular verse, verse 9. It says simply, but there was a man named Simon. That's how it starts, verse 9. Pretty ominous, right? Things are going well. People are being healed in the name of Jesus. People are responding to the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus. We're going to see more. People are being baptized, but... There's this man named Simon. Friends, there were always some man or some woman, wherever and whenever 
gospel ministry is happening and the kingdom is going forth, there often is going to be a, but there was a man named Simon. Someone or something that's trying to break up the good times. In every church, there's going to be something that's going to cause division and problems, but there was a man named Simon. It's been that way from the beginning. And so just a reminder that we should not get surprised when it does happen. So we read about this Simon as the text goes on. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Wouldn't that be something? You walk into a room and that's what people yell, this man is called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. All right, so what do we do with this Simon fellow? He's uh, often known as Simon Magus. Magus simply means a magician in Greek, and it seems like he was a big-time local celebrity. I mean, his social media feed was blowing up. People were following him. He's always posting crazy stuff, crazy videos. He was a sorcerer, it tells us. He's practicing magic. Uh, ancient sorcery was typically a combination of, of science, astrology, and occult practices. So it's uh, something maybe we would refer to as witchcraft today. And the purpose of such sorcery or magic was to use these rituals to somehow manipulate or control other people or gods or demons. It was about power and control. And so if you had the right combination of materials and said the right words, the right incantations, and did the right ceremonies, it would be believed that you would get what you wanted. And so people were often afraid of people like Simon because he harnessed some kind of dark power. And so maybe people would give him money to do things that they wanted him to do. Or maybe people would give him money just to stay away from them and don't cast a spell on us, that sort of thing. Now, in the Bible, sorcery is forbidden for God's people. God tells us to stay away from such practices. It can truly involve evil spirits and demonic activity. You don't want to mess with this stuff. Because ultimately, what a sorcerer is doing, what Simon was doing, was trying to play God. Trying to control and manipulate the spiritual realm and our lives, taking God's place. He's trying to manipulate his way to success and favor. And everyone in Samaria knew who he was. He was a big deal there. And it sounds like he's the kind of guy who would tell you he's a big deal. Right? The text even tells us he boasted that he was someone great. And that should be our first clue that he's not that great. Because if you have to boast about how great you are, Odds are you might not be. So what struck me, though, as we le learn about Simon and read the passage is this repetition of how the people responded. Look at it again with me. It says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Do you see the repetition? He amazed all the people, and all the people gave him their attention, and he had amazed them for a long time 
with his sorcery. One scholar uh, looking at this passage calls it curiously repetitive. It's just interesting how it tells us over and again how the people were responding to him. They were amazed by him. They were bought in, captivated. They gave him their attention. This man is the very power of God. There's some kind of divine working here, they thought. And yet we know, and we'll read on as we see, that he was just some cheap magician, taking advantage of people, leading them astray. But here's what we have to consider. Like we talked about this morning, we as people, like the Samaritans, are drawn to power. When we see something that's amazing or someone we think can deliver something for us that we need, someone can give us control, someone can make us feel safe, we pay attention. We often feel weak and insecure, don't we? And so that's why people are drawn to strong leaders who seem to have it all put together. Because they say, I might not know what's going on in my life, but this person seems to know, so I'm going to stick with them. That's often how we operate. And what we really need is Jesus and the gospel, and yet we'll often settle for counterfeits, like Simon. And so it just led me to reflect on and think about what are our counterfeits today? Like Simon, our world gives its attention and its amazement to certain things. We're drawn to power, charisma, Beauty, what is it that today has captivated your imagination? Just think about that for a moment. What is it today that has captivated your imagination? What is it that's captivated your attention? Where is it that uh, your mind goes when it wanders? You know, one of the things that makes us different than animals is that uh, we can think about thinking. You know, animals, they just do things. They don't, like, sit there pondering, like, what is it all about? <laughs> but, but human beings, we can think about thinking. And so it's actually quite important to think about thinking and to look at our own thought patterns and look at our own hearts and look at our attention and our imagination and say, what is it that captivates me? What is it that amazes me? What is it that I'm drawn to? What is it that I find myself daydreaming of at the office or daydreaming of when I'm doing dishes at home? What is it that I wish I long to be doing? And sometimes uh, we daydream and are captivated by things that are not of the Lord. Right? Things that are not of God. Sometimes we we think uh, lofty thoughts of God and His work in the world, and who he is, and the good uh, life he's given us, and the good things he's called us to uh, in the future. But sometimes we reflect on things that are less than. And I'm not saying this to guilt us. I'm just saying I think it's important that we recognize, hey, where does my mind and my heart go? What is it that's captivated my heart and my imagination? I think we need to agree First, before we name them, that we can just start by agreeing that there are counterfeits out there, right? That it's possible to be caught up in something, amazed by something, have our attention drawn to it uh, by something that promises life and it actually doesn't deliver. 
we can just stop for a moment and realize it's possible to be deceived. It's possible to think that this thing is going to give me life, but I'm actually just buying into a lie, and it can't actually deliver that which it promises. And we can make a really long list of things today that amaze us, captivate us, draw our attention that aren't necessarily of the Lord. Keller, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he subtitled it, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power. And he kind of said, hey, those are the big three today that our minds and hearts are drawn to. Money, sex, power. Those are often some of the biggest things that we think are going to give us life, provide for us what we long for and need, make us feel in control if we have those things. I'd also add we have the counterfeit of, of self, uh, and we get so wrapped up in finding our own identity. We look so inward about what we need and what we think and what we feel and what we want that we often don't look to the Lord and realize the identity that he has already given us as children of God. I think we could add the counterfeit of comfort and entertainment. And it's tricky because some of these aren't necessarily bad things in their proper place, right? And it's tricky because these counterfeits are somewhat believable. There are ways that money and sex and power and and self and comfort and entertainment uh, can provide something for us, satisfy us temporarily or partially, And yet, if they take the place of God, it will do great damage to our souls. And sometimes it's not easy to spot these counterfeits. It takes reflection. It takes the Holy Spirit to help us open our eyes and help us see. And so, the Samaritans are captivated by this Simon and his magic and his power. And they think, this guy is the great power of God. Man, we're going to stick with him. But then something happens. We read verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. There's a radical transformation that takes place in Samaria. Uh, These men and women that for a long time were captivated and caught up with and amazed by and drawn their attention to this Simon and his magic now hear the gospel. And they're baptized. And they seem to respond in faith, trusting in Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about Simon a little bit more. But even Simon, it says, seems he was baptized. He responded with some kind of faith. Now, we're going to question maybe a little bit how genuine his response was and how genuine his conversion was. As we see, the text goes on next week. We're going to get into this, looking at some of the things that go on later with Simon. But for now, just notice this remarkable response, the people coming to faith in Jesus. And there's some key terms here that we see used in the text. Philip proclaimed the good news. The good news uh, proclaimed indicates that there's an announcement. You realize that? He's announcing, proclaiming something that has already taken place. The good news of Jesus. On my whiteboard in uh, my office at the top, I erase a lot of things on my whiteboard and refill it, but one thing I never erase is a line that says, good news is better 
than good advice. Again, good news is better than good advice. Oftentimes we think church is about good advice. Come and figure out what you need to do to live a wise life or get right with God or the hoops you have to jump through. Here's some good advice from the pastor and and from the book, and so go and do it. And the Bible has plenty of good advice and instruction on how to live a wise and godly life, but the heart of Scripture is not good advice. It's actually good news. It's this proclamation, this announcement of what has been done, something that's already taken place. It's like we we read the paper and say, look what the uh, victory that has been won yesterday. It's already happened in Christ. And so Jesus died for us, and He rose again, and He saved us, and He offers forgiveness of sins if you would just trust in Him. The battle has been won. Freedom has been offered to you. Simply come and trust in Christ. So Philip's proclaiming the good news. Look at what Jesus has done for us. It goes on, the good news, it's the good news of the kingdom. You see that language a lot in the New Testament. The kingdom of God. Jesus spoke often of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the place where God reigns. And so the good rule and reign of God has now been inaugurated through His Son, Jesus. As people are made right with God, the King, through faith in Christ, then we see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And now the people of God get to live in the kingdom of God and see the ways of God, His love and His peace and His justice more and more shape our church and our families and our neighborhoods and our city and our state into the ends of the earth. So we see the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As we've already talked about, it's all centered on, focused on the person of Jesus and his work, his death, his resurrection, his shed blood for you and for me. So what I want you to see is that the people hear the gospel and they respond, right? There's this this powerful conversion moment. They were amazed by Simon, the counterfeit, by his, magician, or his magic and his ways, but now they've heard the true gospel and they realize, hey, something's different here. Jesus and his kingdom and his ways, there's something distinct. There's something about the way of Jesus that we've seen before with this Simon clown or whoever else, whatever other message we've heard. Jesus is compelling in a way that we've never seen before. See, Pastor Mark Dever wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, and one of those marks that he talks about is a biblical understanding of conversion. It's important that as a church we have an understanding of conversion. And there he unpacks this truth that when you come to faith in Christ, something fundamental has changed in your life. There's this, this moment where you cross over from death to life, from sin to salvation. And it's not that we always are able to trace exactly here's where the line is, here's where the lights came on. Uh, For some of us, I know as we look at our own story, you say, hey, I was really young when I put my faith in Jesus. I don't always remember life before and exactly when I crossed the line. I know the lights are on now, uh, but I don't always know exactly when that happened. And that's that's okay, but the idea is that, hey, there's this, this fundamental new reality that we walk in when we become believers. That following Jesus is not as if we just kind of like add him on to our otherwise full plate of life and say, yeah, I'll, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and add him on. I'll keep mostly doing what I was already doing before. Now, conversion uh, marks this 
change, this too, transformation in us. We, we think of passages like Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. What did God do? He made us alive, even though we were dead. Same idea in Jesus' own words in John chapter 5. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. So what happens when you come to faith in Jesus? You go from death to life. You're forgiven of your sins. You're brought into relationship with God forever. I mean, could there be any stronger, more stark contrast or language about what happens? Death to life, slavery to freedom, darkness to light. And so what this confronts, I want you to see, is our propensity for syncretism. Syncretism is the, just the blending of various beliefs, traditions, religions. And it's so prevalent today. There's this cultural pressure. We all feel it. Just to embrace and celebrate any and every worldview. Saying it's narrow or harsh if you say that someone is wrong. And so there's this pressure then to end up with, on our spiritual plate, this kind of coherent fusion of spiritual thoughts where we kind of have a sprinkling of you know pop psychology and vague spiritual sentiments and we throw a dash of Jesus in there of course we go to church um, but also there's you know a little bit of eastern religion worked in there and a whole lot of self-esteem and that's just kind of like our spiritual plate we say well Jesus is just kind of a nice little add-on I just want you to see that that Jesus leaves no room for syncretism I mean, his words were quite clear. He's the only way to the Father. If you want to find life and cross over from death to life, what do you have to do? You have to believe in him, he says. There's, there's, there's no other way. And so Jesus was very narrow, very narrow. But he was right. And so pa uh, Pastor Jared Wilson wrote a book a few years ago, again, another book reference, titled Unparalleled, where he says how Christianity's uniqueness makes it compelling. And he, he rattles off chapter after chapter of how truly unique the good news of Jesus is. And I think it's so helpful because what he presents, uh, the message he shares, I think would sound very similar to what the Samaritans perhaps heard that day when Philip comes to them. And as he preaches the gospel and he tells them about Jesus, they obviously saw that, hey, this Jesus is different from what we've heard before. Gospel. This good news is unlike anything we've ever heard, and so we're going to turn to him, and we're going to follow him. And so in the book, he, he walks through kind of chapter after chapter of how truly unique it is. He says things like, hey, as Christians, we worship a God who is sovereign, an almighty God, ruling on his throne in heaven, and yet he is near to us. He's close to the brokenhearted. And not only that, but he came to us. He became one of us. He walked among us as the Lord Jesus. This is the doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrate every Christmas. God came to us. And so rather than saying, hey, God is far away, he's far off, he's distant, he's unapproachable because he's so powerful, we say, no, we have a sovereign almighty God, and yet he is near to us. Again, Jared Wilson writes, in every other religion, people seek God. Only in Christianity does God seek people.
That's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. He goes on to write about how the Christian view of humanity actually makes the most sense. Where we look at human beings and we say, hey, we are at the same time sacred, created in the image of God. Our lives matter to God. We have great capacity to do good and uh, co-labor with God in His world. And yet at the same time, we are sinners and our hearts are corrupt. And we need a Savior. We need someone to heal us and rescue us. Do you see how, how today we have to pick one or the other? Often many worldviews you say, hey, no, you're good or you're great. Um, and don't believe the lie of sin or that you're you know, a, a bad person or corrupt in any way to celebrate who you are. Or people would say, hey, not every human being uh, is sacred or valuable. There's a, a caste system in certain cultures. Say, so, hey, these people, actually the strong can just uh, do whatever they want with the weak. You look throughout history, that's pretty much how it worked. The rich and powerful uh, could do whatever they want with the poor and slaves and the vulnerable. Whereas Christians came along and said, actually, hey, hold on, everybody's made in the image of God. And so we need to protect the vulnerable, no matter, no matter how big or small or old or young or however much money they make or whatever. It's unique. He, in the book, unpacks the uniqueness of the resurrection. Jesus being alive today, coming back from the dead. And most noteworthy, I would say, is the Christian gospel, the message of salvation that's centered on grace. We celebrate right, that Jesus took our sins uh, to the cross and he died for us. And so salvation and justification, being made right with God and spending eternity with God is a gift to be received by faith through simple trust in him. He paid it all for us. And so, so Wilson, uh, uh, again, the author of Unparalleled, references a, a quote from the rock legend Bono um, that really gets at the heart of it. I love this. This is Bono speaking. He says, the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that judgment. He says, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. He says, if karma is all we had, hey, you get what you pay for, you get back what you put out into the world, it's all about what you've done or not done. He says, then, hey, we're in really big trouble. Because we know the reality of our hearts and the reality of our sin. But Bono, of all people, <laughs> points out the idea of grace that we find throughout the New Testament scriptures. Grace is quite different because in grace you get what you don't deserve. You get the unmerited favor and love and mercy and kindness of God poured over your life that you didn't work for or earn or deserve. In Jesus you're offered forgiveness, eternal life, the love of God, not because you worked for it, but because God loves you. And made a way for you to be with him. Now, look back then at the Samaritans and how they respond to this grace. It says, but when they believed Philip, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, they were baptized men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere. It really is shocking how they respond. I mean, we reviewed the history of the Samaritans a bit, and yet here they believe they're baptized in the name of Jesus, who was Jewish. 
He was not a Samaritan. He was a Jewish Messiah. And so in order to follow Jesus, realize that the Samaritans are turning from this Simon character and his worldly magic and his sorcery and his power and his worldly ways, which they were once so amazed by. And now actually compared to the power of Jesus, they look pretty small. But notice they're also turning not only from worldly magic and power in Simon, but from their own uh, false religion. The Samaritans believed some things about God that were accurate, but they believed a lot of things that were incorrect. And they're showing remarkable humility and willingness to surrender to this Jesus, even though their culture presented such strong barriers to following a Jewish Messiah. Remember, they hated the Jews. They thought the Jewish scriptures were wrong. They thought the Jewish temple was the wrong place to worship. But now they've encountered this Jesus. And they're willing to rethink all of it because of how compelling and captivating the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And that's what coming to faith and repentance for most of us is going to look like. Where we say, man, I looked at the world this way, and I bought into this, and I believe this, or my parents taught me this, or my friend on social media says this, and they really think it's true, and so I don't know. And yet I now hear this message of Jesus. And I hear about the grace of the gospel and what he's done for me. And I'm invited to come and experience this love of God that I've never, never found anywhere else. And he invites me to trust him and follow him. The invitation is there for each of us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and how it just shows us the conversion of the Samaritans, how they go from uh, their errors in religion, their true errors in worldly sorcery and magic, and they turn to you, Jesus, and embrace the true gospel. Some of us, Lord, need to, uh, again, simply remember the gospel. Some of us, though, have never responded to you, Jesus. We've never surrendered our lives to you. Maybe now would be that moment, Lord, for some in our midst to simply respond in faith by crying out to you in their hearts, saying, Lord Jesus, I believe and I want to trust in you. Lord Jesus, there's truly no one like you. So please fill us with your spirit and help us walk in your ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen.